Daniel chapter 6. Any of the handouts? Yes. Okay. When lions become kittens. Daniel chapter 6. Let's just read down to verse 9 right now. If uh, Raise your hand while Jerry's passing these out if you need one. You need one? Everybody got an outline? Okay, thank you Jerry and other ushers tonight. It pleased Darius to set over the kingdom 120 satraps to be throughout the whole kingdom. And over them three presidents of whom Daniel was one to whom these satraps should give account so that the king might suffer no loss. Then this Daniel became distinguished above all the other presidents and satraps because an excellent spirit was in him. And the king planned to set him over the whole kingdom. Then the presidents and the satraps sought to find a ground for complaint against Daniel with regard to the kingdom. But they could find no ground for complaint or any fault because he was faithful and no error or fault was found in him. Then these men said, we shall not find any ground for complaint against this Daniel unless we find it in connection with the law of his God. Then these presidents and satraps came by agreement to the king and said to him, O King Darius, live forever. All the presidents of the kingdom, the prefects, the satraps, the counselors, and the governors are agreed that the king should establish an ordinance and enforce an injunction that whoever makes petition to any god or man for thirty days except to you, O king, shall be cast into the den of lions." Now, O king, establish the injunction and sign the document so that it cannot be changed according to the law of the Medes and the Persians, which cannot be revoked. Therefore, King Darius signed the document and injunction. The end of chapter 5 and all of chapter 6 mark a very important transition in the book of Daniel. The Babylonian kingdom represented by the head of gold in the image in chapter 2 is now nothing more than history. And so chapter 6 brings us to the second kingdom. The kingdom that was illustrated by the chest and arms of silver. Now chapter 6 begins with a very familiar story. It's a story probably all of us remember from Sunday school growing up and vacation Bible school. Daniel 6 records the favorite Bible story of many believers today. Now the chapter puts Daniel's extraordinary character and integrity on display. Now the chapter also reminds us that there is a spiritual battle that we are engaged in. Paul reminds us in Ephesians chapter 6 that we don't simply battle against flesh and blood, but against principalities and powers in high places. There's a spiritual warfare going on around us. And we need to wise up to it and we need to suit up for battle 
with the armor that God has equipped us with. You know, the world doesn't like to have its conscience pricked, does it? Doesn't like that. Paul closes Romans 1 by talking about all the sin in the world and about how those doing those things that he describes here not only do those things uh, which are uh, wicked in the sight of God, but they also encourage other people to join in with them. Now Daniel would not engage in the lack of integrity of others and so they came up with a plot to simply get rid of him. Now let's look at the setting in the first three verses. The first thing I want to talk to you about tonight is the players. First of all there's Darius. Secondly there's the 120 satraps. Now folks this seems like a lot of officials but we need to keep in mind from Esther chapter 1 and verse 1 it, it indicates to us that the Medo-Persian Empire was made up of 127 separate provinces. And so when we consider that, it doesn't seem like all that many officials mentioned here. And then we also see that three governors or presidents are mentioned, and one of them, of course, is Daniel. Now, I want to talk to you a minute about Darius. Speculation abounds in the technical literature about who Darius is because there are no historical sources outside of the Bible that indicate there was ever such a man who was over the Medo-Persian Empire. Uh, sources indicate a Cyrus the Persian, but no Darius the Mede. Now, there's generally two options that have dominated among conservative scholars. The first opinion is that he was a governor that Cyrus had placed over this region. Uh, a number of ancient texts mention a man by the name of Gubaru. I hope I'm saying his name right. And many people believe that that figure was perhaps Darius. Or another interpretation is that Darius might have been simply another name for Cyrus. It was common for kings to have dual names and titles. And since he was over both the Medes and the Persians, on the Persian side he was known as Cyrus, and on the Mede side he was known as Darius. Now, several things are in favor of that interpretation. Cyrus's mother was a Mede and Daniel may have been following a common Jewish practice that reckoned a child of a mixed marriage according to the maternal side. Now Cyrus the Persian is believed to have been approximately 62 years of age when Babylon fell and the reference at the end of chapter 5 says that Darius the Mede was 62. And in fact, uh, chapter 6, verse 28 uh, reads, if, if you'll look at that uh, verse at the end of this chapter, it says, So this Daniel prospered during the reign of Darius and the reign of Cyrus the Persian. The Aramaic can be interpreted Darius, comma, even Cyrus. Again, indicating that it might be one and the same person simply with another name. Now ultimately the verdict on that remains somewhat of a mystery. 
Well, let's talk a little bit more about the satraps as well. Darius must have known about the propensity for dishonesty that the satraps might have. Perhaps, perhaps they would not have reported all the taxation of their province to Darius and hold back of it, some of it for themselves. Uh, you'll remember that's one of the reasons the tax collectors of Jesus' day were so despised. Because they would inflate the amount of tax that you owed, you'd pay them, and they would pocket the rest and give what was owed to Rome. And, and maybe that's what these guys are known to do. And so to try to prevent this, Darius puts three governors or presidents over these 120 satraps. There are three to keep them in check. Now, verse 2 gives the reason so that the king wouldn't suffer loss. Now, since we've talked about Darius and the satraps, let's not forget the most important human player in this scenario, and that would be Daniel. Look at verse 3. Verse 3 points out that Daniel distinguished himself above the governors and satraps. Now, this is a verdict that by now we come to expect about Daniel's life, right? Every time we read about him, he's distinguishing himself in a positive way. And we're told how here. We're told that an excellent spirit was in him. Now folks, Daniel has been through a lot by the time we get to chapter 6. By now, he, most scholars believe he's either in his mid to late 80s, possibly as old as even 90. But he's not bitter at all. Now he had a lot of reason to be bitter. He was taken away from his homeland and his parents as a teenager. Uh, the prospect of having a wife and a kid uh, and kids and freedom, all of that was taken away from him. So you could expect somebody to be bitter under those circumstances, but Daniel is a picture of grace. A picture of grace. Somebody with an excellent spirit in him. And through the years as he's aged, he has aged with God's grace. And so that's an example of how all of us ought to be, right? We ought to age with grace. Whatever life hands to us. Life had handed Daniel nothing but lemons and Daniel consistently had made lemonade out of the lemons. I'm reminded of the story of the 90-year-old man who married a woman half his age. He bought new suits with extra pairs of pants to go with them. They bought a house on a 30-year mortgage and they bought one near the elementary school so the kids wouldn't have far to walk. <laughs> now that's optimism, isn't it? <laughs> but folks, all kidding aside, the Bible honors old age and emphasizes that old age is a time to serve the Lord. You see, senior adults can retire from secular work and then they can work full-time for the Lord, right? At state convention this week, uh, M.O. Owens, the founding pastor at my former church, Parkwood in Gastonia, he's 99 years of age, 99. And uh, uh, that church has gone primarily contemporary, but they've got about two or 300 folks who still like traditional service. And so while the church is meeting on Sunday morning, he meets with another segment of the church in the old sanctuary, their dining hall now, and he's their pastor. And he preaches, he told me he preaches twice every Sunday. 
He plays golf on Tuesdays. He goes to the gym and he works out with weights and he travels all over the state of North Carolina with state convention work and he used to publish uh, a little journal, a little magazine uh, for pastors every single month. He's still going strong. He's outlived three wives now. His third wife recently died. Uh, I tell you what, I'm, uh, instead of looking for another wife among the senior adult population, I think he needs to go down to the college department and look for his fourth wife. 99 years of age and still going strong. Folks, that's how Daniel was. Senior adult man, still going strong for the Lord. And again, what a picture of grace. Uh, Daniel's life is such, even under a new king and a new kingdom, Daniel is recognized for this excellent spirit, and he's promoted once again. Well, I want you to notice in verses 4 to 9, the plot, the others are jealous of Daniel. Uh, here Daniel is, one of these foreigners. They probably referred to him as a foreigner, whatever the word they'd use for that in the Aramaic. He's one of those foreigners from from uh, Jerusalem that, that, that the king had brought in and made boss over us. And so they're jealous of him. And they're filled with blind ambition. Now, they probably also feel like with Daniel in, in, in the way, they don't have the opportunity of padding their pockets by being dishonest. You know, jealousy and envy can do evil things, can't they? Now, compound that by the fact that these guys apparently don't, well, not apparently, it's clearly they don't have any fear of God whatsoever. So these are dangerous men. And so they began to put a plot together. Now, I imagine there were a lot of closed-door meetings late at night. They, they decide that they need to find some kind of skeleton in Daniel's closet. And so they put Daniel's life under a microscope and they scrutinize everything that he said and he did. And yet I want you to notice that they couldn't find anything against him. Now this must have frustrated them every day. Maybe they even hired a... A P.I., who whatever a P.I. would have been like in, in their day and time. And still there was no trash that they could turn up on this guy. Now folks, let's suppose somebody were to do that to you. Suppose they were to check out all of your school records, all of your phone calls, all of your internet usage, all of your shopping habits, all of your financial records, your TV programs, your tax returns, your vocabulary, a criminal background check, jokes that you tell, how you treat your spouse or your kids, those around you. If everything about your life were scrutinized in the smallest detail, could you survive that? I hope so. Daniel survived that. He was a man above reproach. They found him faithful and faultless and fervent in all of his duties. He was indeed a man above reproach. He was a man above reproach. He was everything that these other guys were not. It reminds me of what some people wanted to do one time with Charles Spurgeon. 
His opponents wanted to try to dig up some trash against him. Spurgeon said, listen, whatever you find out about me, you can write it in the skies. Publish it for everybody to see. Now that's integrity. Daniel was Mr. Integrity and Mr. Consistency. He didn't live two different lives. And so now they kick it up a notch. Uh, Look beginning in verse 5. In verse 5 these men said, We shall not find any ground for complaint against this Daniel unless we find it in connection with the law of his God. They began putting a murder plot together and in verse 6 they used flattery. It says, Then these presidents and satraps came by agreement to the king and said to him, O King Darius, live forever. They're flattering this guy and then they lie. They, all the presidents of the kingdom, the, the prefects, the satraps, the, the counselors, the governors are agreed that the king should establish an ordinance and enforce an injunction that whoever makes petition to any god or man for 30 days except you, O king, shall be cast into the den of lions. Now, not everybody had decided that because, again, who's one of them? Daniel's one of them. Daniel's not a part of this. All of us have decided, here's what you need to do. So they're flattering the king, they're exaggerating, you know, they say here's what we need to do and here's what you need to do and they put together this plot. What they're doing here is simply appealing to the king's ego. Now Darius probably played into this. He probably felt this ego trip and these felt like these guys wanted to be loyal and they wanted to help him establish his rule and his new kingdom. And So according to verse 9 he signs this decree. Now, secular sources confirm the testimony here that the laws of the Medes and the Persians once put into place could not be changed even by a king. The ancient writer Diodorus of Sicily reported the case of a man named Charidamus who was put to death under Darius III sometime around 336 to 330 B.C. after being sentenced to death the man was discovered to be innocent and yet he was still executed because the laws of the Medes and Persians could not be revoked. Yes, amen. <laughs> now look at the pilgrim, verse 10. When Daniel knew that the document had been signed, he went to his house where he had windows in his upper chamber open toward Jerusalem. He got down on his knees three times a day and prayed and gave thanks before his God as he had done previously. Now I want you to notice what he did not do. He didn't complain. He didn't organize an opposition parade. You know, a lot of Christians just want to complain all the time. When everything doesn't go their way, they, they want to go into the boss and go off about this not being fair, that not being fair. They whine about everything. That's not a good witness, is it? Now, I'm not suggesting we don't ever want to speak up. I'm simply suggesting we don't want to be known as a bunch of whiners. Now, I want you to notice what Daniel did. According to verse 10, he, he went home. And he carried on with what he had always done. He prayed. 
Three times a day. He opened his windows toward Jerusalem. Remember in that great passage we talk about, 2 Chronicles seven fourteen. If my people who are called by not my name shall humble themselves and pray. In chapter 6, leading up to chapter 7 of 2 Chronicles, it talks about uh, looking out towards Jerusalem. And may, if God's people ever get in trouble, looking towards Jerusalem and making their petitions to God. And that's what Daniel's doing. He's a man of prayer. Now folks, sadly I would assume if Christians were told today that we couldn't pray for 30 days, for too many today, that wouldn't be a big deal at all, would it? Because so many don't pray. They claim to be believers, but they never fellowship with their Heavenly Father. Now I know that sounds weird and sounds unreasonable, but some Christians are like that. They don't pray, and so a 30-day fast from prayer really wouldn't be a big deal to them. But Daniel was a man of prayer. Jesus was a man of prayer. Mark 1.35 says, Early in the morning before daybreak, Jesus got up and he, and, he, and he went and found a lonely place to pray, and he got alone with the Heavenly Father. And he went before God in his petitions. We ought to have a time and a place to pray every day. Nothing magical about a time and a place. It just kind of serves as a reminder, right? It's kind of a holy place where we meet with God and do business with God. Now I want you to notice what Daniel also does. He gives thanks. Now imagine that, giving thanks. From, uh, from chapter 9 of Daniel, we, we know, we, we find out from that chapter that he knew the prophecies of Jeremiah. He knew that God's people were going to be disciplined and go into exile and, and after 70 years they're going to be, go back home. Daniel's processing all that. He probably knows that that time's close. And from Jeremiah 29, God says, I know the plans that I have for you, plans for good and not for evil, despite all the hardship that they've been through as a nation and despite all the, the discipline that God's been uh, giving to, to Israel, to Judah rather. Uh, Daniel knows from Scripture that God's discipline is for our good. And so despite the exile. Despite the discipline, despite the hardship, Daniel's giving thanks to God. Because again, evidently, he knows that this is ultimately going to turn out for the good of God's people. He's a man of prayer and a man of thanksgiving. And he's not afraid. Philippians 4 says that we don't need to be anxious about anything, but through prayer and supplication, we need to present all of our requests to God. And when we do that, what does God give us in exchange? He gives us that perfect peace that passes all understanding. Well, I want you to notice the pronouncement of judgment. Begin reading with me in verse 11. Then these men came by agreement and found Daniel making petition and plea before his God. Then they came near and said to the king concerning the injunction, O king, did you not sign an injunction that anyone 
who makes petition to any god or man within 30 days except you, O king, shall be cast into the den of lions. The king answered and said, The thing stands fast according to the law of the Medes and Persians, which cannot be revoked. Then they answered and said before the king, Daniel, who is one of the exiles from Judah, pays no attention to you, O king, or the injunction you have signed, but makes his petition three times a day. Then the king, when he heard these words, was much distressed and set his mind to deliver Daniel, and he labored till the sun went down to rescue him. Then these men came by agreement to the king and said to the king, Know, O king, that it's the law of the Medes and Persians, that no injunction or ordinance that the king establishes can be changed. Then the king commanded, and Daniel was brought and cast into the den of lions. The king declared to Daniel, May your God whom you serve continually deliver you. And a stone was brought and laid on the mouth of the den, and the king sealed it with his own signet and with the signet of his lords, that nothing might be changed concerning Daniel. i tell you what, these guys are sneaky, aren't they? Verse 12, they remind the king of the edict. They remind him it can't be undone. It's the law of the Medes and the Persians. They make their accusation, verse 13. They've set a trap, they've baited the trap, and now they draw the net, they close the trap. These are cunning men. These are slick men. Reminder to us that ungodly people in the world they can be dangerous, can't they? The king immediately sees what's up. He knows he's been caught in the trap too. Verse 14, apparently he had to carry out the sentence the same day and, and so he knows he only has until that evening to try and find a loophole in the law. He searches all day long, takes counsel. Uh, looks through the laws, regulations that he could, that he could find uh, to put his hand on something to see if there's any way he could free Daniel. Now what's that tell you he thought of Daniel? This guy thought a lot of him too, right? Just like Nebuchadnezzar had. There's no way out. And so finally in verses 16 and 17, he's, he's simply resolved. And, but he says, may your God whom you serve continually deliver you again here's an ungodly king who knew of Daniel's worship and service of his God folks would people look at our lives and would they know of our Christian faith would they know of our service and devotion to God would they say of you at work Boy, now she's a woman of God. Or of you, he, he's a man of God. Boy, he's, he's full of integrity and devotion. He's faithful. Would you be known in that same regard? Now look at the protection, fifth, fifthly, verses 18 to, to 22. It says, Then the king went to his palace and spent the night fasting. No diversions were brought to him, and sleep fled from him. Then at break of day the king arose and went in haste to the den of lions. As he came near to the den where Daniel was, he cried out in a tone of anguish. 
The king declared to Daniel, O Daniel, servant of the living God, has your God, whom you serve continually, been able to deliver you from the lions? Then Daniel said to the king, O king, live forever. My God sent his angel and shut the lions' mouths, and they've not harmed me, because I was found blameless before him, and also before you, O king, I have done no harm. The king's the one who had the miserable night. He allowed himself no entertainment, no food. He couldn't sleep. Verse 19, he gets up the next morning. He hurries. He's hoping against all odds and hoping against hope itself. And then the great testimony in there in verse 22. Daniel's able to testify that God's protected him. He sent his angels he sent his angel and those lines had become like little, little kittens. Daniel says God protected him because God knew the story, right? God knew what was going on. He says, I was found blameless before him and also before you, O king, I've done no harm. Boy, imagine what a night that must have been for Daniel. That angel come down and Quiet those lions. Daniel probably laid his head over on them and used one of those lions as a pillow, right? He slept good. He slept good. Here's Darius. He's pacing. He's got insomnia. He's worried sick because he knows a righteous man has been condemned without cause. He can't sleep. But Daniel's sleeping like a baby. Now look at the pleasure, verse 23 and 24. That Then the king was exceedingly glad, commanded that Daniel be taken up out of the den. So Daniel was taken up out of the den and no kind of harm was found on him because he had trusted in his God. And the king commanded and those men who had maliciously uh, accused Daniel were brought and cast into the den of lions. They, their children, their wives... And before they reached the bottom of the den, the lions overpowered them and broke all their bones in pieces. I have no problem believing that that angel turned those lions into calm little kittens, if, as it were. If you believe Genesis 1-1, folks, you don't have to worry about any other miracle in the Bible. Right? God, God protected Daniel. Daniel was safe. He was just as safe as he could be. They got him out, threw everybody else in, and those lions ripped him to pieces. You know, when we were over in Africa back in February, March, and we drove through that lion park, and, and uh, that park... When you, when you drive through it, they've, I guess, taken a front-end loader or something or a grater, and they've, they've, they've carved the road down probably this far. And so you've got a little earthen wall on each side of the vehicle. And those gigantic lions, one of them was sleeping right on the, right on the edge. And we, we pulled up, and... Uh, that gigantic thing was laid out and its head was right up against our window almost. They, they, they told us, don't you dare roll down a window or get out 
A lion can cover 30 feet, they said, in one second. In one second. They said, you get out because a lion might be 20, 25 feet away and you think you can get out of the vehicle and take a little snapshot or something. Before you can get back to the door and get in, that lion can get you. I told Robbie Jones, I said, if you'll roll down the window and clip a little bit of his mane, I'll give you a $100 bill. <laughs> he didn't take me up on that. But, I mean, the head of that lion being right outside of, of that van went massive. I mean, whoo. You don't realize how big a full-grown male lion is. And uh, the, the, the forearms on those things and, and the paw, gigantic, the, 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 the feet. I mean, I bet, I bet one paws like both of my hands right there. Put just big old huge, massive, massive creatures. So as soon as these families, hmm? no, he didn't wake up. He didn't wake up. Oh, probably 15. Yeah, yeah. And that one, and one of them, one, another one got up and kind of jumped down off the little, walked right out in front of us, just kind of right in front of the vehicle. And I tell you what, they're taller than you realize, too. They're big. Uh, but I was, I, I tell you what, when you see them that, that up close, Arliss, kind of gives you a new perspective, doesn't it? How big those things are. And all these lines down in that den, time these men and their family, they hit the bomb. These, these beasts have just ripped them to shreds. They were hungry. That's right. <laughs> well, look at the proclamation, verses 25 to 27. Then King Darius wrote to all the peoples, nations, and languages that dwell in all the earth, Peace be multiplied to you. I make a decree that in all my royal dominion people are to tremble and to fear before the God of Daniel, for he's the living God enduring forever. His kingdom shall never be destroyed and his dominion shall be to the end. He delivers and rescues. He works signs and wonders in heaven and on earth. He who has saved Daniel from the power of the lions. So this Daniel prospered during the reign of Darius and the reign of Cyrus the Persian. Proclamation. Here's an ungodly king who can't help but recognize what the God of Daniel has done in Daniel's life. Here's even the ungodly issuing a proclamation. Finally, I want you to see the prospering, verse 28. So this Daniel prospered during the reign of Darius, the reign of Cyrus the Persian. God caused Daniel to live and he prospered his life. D.L. Moody was one of the most remarkable men of modern times. He was used by God to win thousands upon thousands to Christ. He established the Moody Bible Institute. He was a man of vision. When he died... They put 1 John 2.17 on his tombstone. 1 John 2.17 says, The world passes away and the lust thereof, but he that doeth the will of God abideth forever. That could be on Daniel's tombstone too. 
What's some lessons as we close? First of all, character counts. Character counts. God notices. The world notices. Folks, if you and I compromise our character or our integrity, we have lost something more valuable than gold. Character counts. Secondly, I want you to notice it's possible to maintain your character and integrity. You don't have to go along and be one of the gang. You don't have to. Here was 120 satraps, three governors, Daniel one of those governors. It was one against all those others. Daniel didn't go along with them. You don't have to go along with the world. You don't have to go along and just be one of the gang. You can take a stand for Christ. Thirdly, Christians have not been promised the way life, uh, have not been promised that life will always be fair or that the world will reward their integrity. All this was very unfair to Daniel. Very unfair. The world's not always going to be unfair to us. There are Christians who die for their faith. They become martyrs. They, they get mistreated. They get put in prison. They get locked away. They, they find themselves in isolation and loneliness and starvation and torture and in death. And that even happens in modern times too in other parts of the world. We've not been promised that life's always going to be fair. Number four, Satan's like a roaring lion seeking someone to devour. And then lastly, God's able to look after his own. Got a question for you. Does God always deliver his children? Trick question. Does God always deliver His children? Yes. One way or the other. God does always deliver His children. May not be the way we want the deliverance, but God always, in His all-wise and sovereign and providential ways, He delivers His children according to His will. The Bible says, No weapon formed against you shall prosper. God's able to look after His own. And Romans 8.28 says that God's even able to make all things work together for good to those who love God and are called according to His purpose. Amen? Yes, that's right. Romans 8.31, if God be for us, who can be against us? And of course it's a rhetorical question. The sovereign God of the universe, if He be for us, then who can essentially be against us if God's for us? Nobody. Nobody. Yes. Amen. <laughs> Situation may not seem fair, but God's always there. Yes. That's right. Yeah. I tell you what, there's a great, great verse 
in Revelation pertaining to that. Um, Revelation 12, 11. says they conquered him by the blood of the lamb and by the word of their testimony and they love not their lives even unto death Christians who love their lives or didn't who who uh who has it say it again let me let me get it right for they love not their lives even unto death You know, what that's saying to us, maybe when the chips are down, maybe, maybe we love life too much. Remember what Jesus said, you can, you can live to save your life and lose your life. But he said, if you lose your life for my sake, you save it. Yeah. That's right. But you read you can read Hebrews 11 about the Old Testament saints, you can look at the New Testament saints. You can look at Christians during the time of the Reformation, the Protestant Reformation. And one thing you notice about all of them, they boldly lived out their convictions. They took a stand for Christ, even if it cost them imprisonment or death. And look at how mightily God used them. What about today if God brought that kind of persecution upon the church? Would we run and hide and compromise our conviction? Or would we not love our lives unto death? Would we love Christ more and be willing to take a courageous stand? Sure would, wouldn't it? Yeah, sure would. 